0: Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing.
1: This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
0: Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz along with my co host, Justin Ritchie.
1: Hey, Seth. It's been a while since our last episode, but uh, we definitely have a good one today.
0: We sure do. We have Kevin Tomlinson, who is the director of uh, the movie Back to the Garden flower power comes full circle.
1: I saw Back to the Garden at the Vancouver International Film Festival here, and I was pretty blown away. It was an incredibly realistic and humor-filled look at what it was actually like to move back to the land in the 60s, and all those people, uh, he found them in 1988, and then shot this footage of them at a festival, and then years later decided, Hey, let's see what they're up to. So uh, the film was really a lot of fun, and it presented a very realistic picture of what it actually means to face the hardships of moving out to a subsistence kind of environment. Not just the
0: hardships, though—kind of the benefits as well. Yeah,
1: and the and the benefits too. I mean, it's uh, like I was saying—it's a very realistic
0: portrait of what it's actually like to do it uh, good and bad yes and in the movie he he goes back to those people that he found in in the 70s and he comes back to them in a modern day he sees what they're up to and says hey how your values translate into modern times and we get a good chance to see how those people are dealing with modern society with the same kind of values that they they had back in the 70s how's everything been on on your end so i've got i got a few jobs opportunities lined up Right now I'm in Atlanta, actually, visiting my lady. Yeah, going well. How are, how are things with you, Justin? Great.
1: Vancouver's winter has set in, so it's kind of cold. But at the end of this week, I am flying back to hopefully sunny North Carolina and uh, hanging out for a few weeks with family and friends there. When you get back into North Carolina, Seth, maybe we can do some live recordings On the East Coast as opposed to our former live recordings, which have been out here on the West Coast.
0: Yeah, with your new microphone, maybe.
1: Yeah, I'm getting a new microphone for my Christmas gift to myself. So now I will have higher quality sound.
0: Also to mention, Justin bought himself a new saxophone, which we might be able to get some clips of later on. (laughs) In the podcast, <laughs> I don't know if you want to hear that yet. Stay tuned to the for the interview with Kevin Thomason and about his movie Back to the Garden, and also some more banter at the other side of this interview.
1: Today we're speaking with Kevin Tomlinson, a Seattle-based independent producer, uh, director, and cinematographer for over 25 years. He's received numerous Emmys and tellies for his network news camera work with NBC, ABC, CBS, PBS, and many more. But today we're talking about his recent film, Back to the Garden. So before we start talking about Back to the Garden, is there anything else you'd like to add to your bio?
2: I don't think so. I mean, you'd wow, that, I'm pretty, that sounds pretty impressive to me. Other than the fact that keep in mind, this is my this is our first documentary feature film. You know, up till now I've been working for for network news primarily, and lots doing lots of corporate jobs. And yeah, I mean, this is really a, kind of a breakthrough piece of work for us, and we're very thrilled about it.
1: Cool. And how many people were on the team to put this together?
2: Oh, very small. This is like a, a, such a shoestring budget. You know, this is all self-financed. Basically, myself and my wife a fantastic young editor named Tim Cash who I definitely want to give some kudos to here uh, out of Bend Oregon he uh, he really put his own feel on uh, on the on the editing of this film and and I uh, got to give him a lot of thanks You know, so basically it was like three people doing almost the entire job.
1: So Back to the Garden is a documentary. It started with some footage you shot in 1988 of some uh, people in eastern Washington state living completely off the grid in an almost tribal manner. So in the film, you return to find these people again 20 years later. What were they doing now?
2: The 20 years ago in 1988, when I first met them, they had already been in the eastern Washington area probably, you know, for, for 10, 15 years, some of them. They came in the 70s from all over the country. Uh, what they were doing 20 years later was something that most people will have to, you know, I, I don't want to spoil the film for, for everyone, so, you, you you know, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but let's just say that most of the people were still doing the same things they were when I met them. Wow. <laughs> Uh-huh. I, mean, I mean, it really didn't change that much with some exceptions, and that's what uh, I think, you know, I, I don't want to give away too much. There, there are definitely some people who, who left the rural uh, their rural lifestyle to seek out, well, let's face it, uh, the, the, the toughest thing these people faced was just lack of funds. I mean, they just, there's no money. You can't really make it uh, being an organic farmer unless you've got, you know, a pretty big operation. So everyone had to try to figure out ways to get by on little, little or nothing. And um, I think that's what surprised me the most is that given these hardships, given the fact that they're in a very uh, isolated rural community with uh, without a whole lot of means for su- financial support, they still managed to stick it out Stay with it and and live the lifestyle and walk basically walk the talk. Can you describe the land a little bit
0: where these people live, and what is it do you think that you know brings these people together? What unites them and how they live?
2: The area itself is um, it, it's what's called the Okanagan, also you're familiar with that up in Canada. It extends over the border into Canada. Up to I think Penticton and so forth, but it's a beautiful kind of rolling rock, rolling hills area. Very warm in the summer, cold in the winter time. Fair amount of snow, but very you know very um, sparse population, small towns. Almost feels kind of like Montana. These folks were kind of living in what I call extended tribal communities. A lot of folks see our film and they think, "Oh, you know, was this was this a commune?" No, this wasn't a commune. They were living in the, you know, everyone had their own land, their own property. Got to remember, back in the '70s when they came there, farmland was selling for very, very reasonable prices. So uh, a lot of this property was picked up fairly cheap. It was affordable. Today, that would be a much harder thing to pull off. But um, so they got established here; they all lived within about maybe, you know, within a hundred-mile radius of of each other. And I think what sustained this community was their philosophy, their lifestyles. Uh, it was definitely a, a '60s hippie back-to-the-land culture. What sustained folks was the fact that there were several uh, several organized gatherings yearly that were put on in this community. And that really brought people together on a regular basis so they could socialize, exchange goods, keep in touch with each other, take, you know, childcare, babysitting, you know, they all were involved in each other's lives. And um, the healing gathering, which is featured in our film, was just one of those events. There's a barter fair that takes place in the fall. There's several other get-togethers as well. So I think that's really what was kind of the glue that kept the, this community together.
1: I can imagine that finding all of these people again that you found at this gathering 20 years ago, finding them again was not necessarily an easy task. How did you even track them down?
2: You know, I thought the same thing as well, Justin. I thought it was going to be difficult to find folks. Initially, it, it was a little bit hard because you got to remember – I had not had any contact with these people in the intervening years. So I was in my early thirties when I first met these folks and I spent, you know, I shot all this footage and then over the next almost twenty years, this footage sat in my basement, just slowly decomposing. <laughs> and I, I just never, I never forgot about it. And I always felt there's got to be something there. I know there's some kind of story that needs to be told here, but I just couldn't figure it out at first. And really, when I first looked at this, everything just seemed kind of cliched and, and kind of oh well, yeah, of course that's what that's what hippies would say. You know, we're all about peace, love, and living simply. In 1988, I just didn't feel like people were going to, you know, they wouldn't be open to those ideas, that it would be ridiculed. you got to remember, you know, our, our president was Ronald Reagan at the time, and American culture was in a whole different context. Huh, maybe not so different <laughs> right. than, the Bush, than the Bush administration was maybe, but I just knew that people would not be open to these ideas. It would, it would be out of sync with the society at the time. But, uh, you know, fast forward 20 years later, and these things had completely, they sounded prophetic to me, and, and I just felt like now is the time to bring this out.
0: How did
1: you track them down? Oh, how
2: did I track them down? So, when I went back to, to find these folks, after I got, re, you know, sort of reignited about how prophetic this stuff was and wow, wouldn't it be great to find out what they're doing today? I simply went back to the same co-op, the same natural foods co-op in the small town of tanasket where I had originally seen this flyer, this handwritten flyer on the reader board announcing the healing gathering. I emailed the manager there and said, you know, I explained who I was and I had this footage and would it be possible to reconnect with, I had this one person who I was in touch with back then, his name is Jerry Bartels, Jerry had sort of guided me through this whole thing and, give, and, and championed my, um, my uh, willingness to want to photograph these folks. It all started, started with him and it came full circle to you know, reconnect with Jerry and once I reconnected with him, everything else fell into place. And so it actually surprisingly wasn 't that difficult to find everybody after I made that connection with Jerry because uh, then it was like I had the seal of approval.
1: Tell us a little bit about your own story and what kind of led you out to Eastern Washington to find them originally.
2: My own story was you know I live in Seattle eastern washington is is a a rural, beautiful part of the state and uh, uh, I was simply on a road trip with uh, a good buddy of mine, and, and we wanted to just get out of the city and and kind of escape to do a little Western road trip. I mean, these were small, small towns with, uh, you know, rodeos were going on, and it just had a whole different vibe that you could really... You see the stars at night and, you know, lay on the highway and looking up and seeing this beautiful array of stars in eastern Washington, which you can't see here in the city. We went out over there and, and just drove around for a couple of weeks and car camped and uh, just had a great time. And uh, I like to say this was kind of my Jack Kerouac, Neil Cassidy on the road moment where we were trying to discover the West and, and, and basically, uh, without sounding too philosophical, I, I think we were also kind of looking for, you know, a little bit of something about ourselves, looking inside as well. But along the way, uh, as I said, I found this sign, hand handwritten sign in, a, in this natural food co-op. You know, I was completely taken in by that, and I thought, God, this sounds like a like a blast from the past, sort of like a, a love-in or a bee-in. And here it was 1988 instead of 1968, of course. So um, that's how it all got started. But we were just young guys just stretching ourselves and, and trying to, you know, encounter the rural West. And so it was completely coincidental.
1: I know what you mean. Actually, I used to live in North Carolina, not too far away from Seth, and I came out here to British Columbia and kind of experienced the driving through the West for the first time. And it is, yeah. uh, you know, a really interesting experience, and you really do learn about yourself in a way that I don't think is possible in kind of your home environment. What What did you find out about yourself when you set out into the wilderness a little bit?
2: I like that question. That's good. The things that you find out are are uh, basically it was. You know, that, that uh, your whole world isn't quite the way you think it is when you, when you get out of way. And, and I think, you know, like, like any experience when you travel, um, it's, it's concentrated living. You know, you're able to get perspective on yourself and your station in the world and, and what you want to do and where you want to go. And, uh, what you want to become. I felt like you don't get that, uh, running around in circles in the city, uh, you know, just being busy and, and doing your day to day life. It, it was fantastic. And, and I think I, I still love going on road trips like that. I love Eastern Washington. I love the Okanagan. You know, I just feel like that's good for everyone. We all need to, to get some perspective on our lives f- from time to time. But especially in your 20s and 30s, that's, that's the time to, to really do it
1: if you're just joining us we're speaking with kevin tomlinson director of back to the garden on the extra environmentalist so we're gonna play a clip from the the film now in context uh it has to do with the way that these people live that that you were talking about in uh, just a minute ago so we'll play the clip Thanks. and then we'll go from there
2: These people are living like the pioneers, like our pioneer forefathers that came out here and literally dug holes in the side of a cliff in order to make a shelter, um, cut their own wood, built their own houses. This is something that most people wouldn't put up with for more than maybe a a summer. And then we'd be right back in our our comfy little suburban existence. Uh, So
0: where do these people learn to do these things? Where do they learn these skills? Uh, I mean, digging a hole in the ground and building a house is is one thing to talk about in theory. But when you actually get out there and do it, it's kind of different. You have a lot of different yeah. life yeah. skills I mean, to learn and your survival skills. Did they have yeah. any influences in in learning these things or were, were there any books or things that people were reading?
2: Yeah, there were, uh, Seth. And in fact, that's a great question in the sense that a lot of these folks were not prepared for this kind of arduous lifestyle living out in the country where... You know, you, you basically have to provide for yourself. You can't just go down to Home Depot or the local hardware store. You, you really need to be able to have a, be able to wear a lot of hats and have a lot of skills. Which is why I refer to, you know, the, this lifestyle that these hippies were living, uh, was more like our grandparents' lifestyles than our own. Uh, you know, it was very much of a pioneering lifestyle where, you know, like, almost like homesteading where you have to have some some building skills. You have to know how to pound some nails and measure and and be able to uh, construct a house that's going to keep you warm in the winter and keep the rain out of your house. You also need to be able to grow food. To help sustain yourself, you can't just go down to the grocery store, which you know, because of the rural lifestyle that these folks were living, you know, stores were maybe you know a half hour away or maybe an hour's drive from the house. This brings us also back to a, I think, my fascination with this subject, which is the quality of the self-reliance that these people had created in their lives. I, I was very taken with that whole idea of being self-reliant and being able to, to basically take care of yourself and there's something really valuable there in that, and it, in that ability to be able to provide for yourself, to build a home, to grow food, to establish a, a, a very strong sense of community and to be happy with that. You know, I, I think there's a real value and there, there's a real lesson in that that I think a lot of us Maybe living outside of that lifestyle um, don't really understand until you're there, and um, that's part of the message I was hoping to get across in the film here. So where did they learn all these skills? A lot of them ha- didn't have these skills. A lot of them were college-educated, smart people, but they had very little experience knowing about any- knowing anything about building or growing food. So how did they figure it out? Well. A lot of it came through a very famous book at the time, which came out in the early or late 60s, early 70s, called The Whole Earth Catalog. Maybe you guys have heard of that, uh, which was put out by a guy named Stuart Brand. Actually, even Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple today, credits this book... With being a, a seminal book at the time and, and it was really created for the, for the back to the land movement it was a, it was like a big serious catalog on where you could find information and supplies and tools for this new social experiment which these guys were which these back to the land hippies were experimenting with. It was how do you create a water pump? How do you build a, a sustainable Home, uh, you know all, all these ideas about construction styles and geodesic domes and health and rural lifestyles were were all contained within this book. It was almost a precursor to the internet. I mean I know that 's a wild sort of concept at, at the time. Stuart brand I read in, in, in interviews later said he was looking for a way to help these these friends of his who were out there trying to establish communes in New Mexico and California and all over the United States and even into Europe and Canada at that time. This was, an int- this was a very important book. It was a resource which a lot of people used in order to find out where to get these supplies and equipment, books, other books. So uh, uh, that's really where they got the experience. And of course, you learn from, from other friends as well who are out there doing the same thing you're trying to do. It was just putting one foot in front of the other.
0: So you talk about Stuart Brand and his Whole Earth Catalog. For people growing up, you know, in, in suburbia, I doubt they even had this this kind of lifestyle in their imagination. How did people go from living in suburbia, you know, reading this catalog to making the life choice to go out into nature and create this yeah, life?
2: I think there was a very strong component of romanticism involved in all of this. There was a yearning that you know maybe this isn't what life's all about living in, growing up in the suburbs, or being in a city. And I think you know the the music at the time. Again, this is this all kind of happened back in the '60s. the The, the society felt that we needed to go through some real changes as a as a country and as a society. A lot of these folks who who left the cities to build their own homes and live in the country. I think there was a very romantic feeling about getting back to the earth, growing your own food, growing organic food. It was both a rejection of social values at the time and embracing a whole new lifestyle, which many people felt, you know, was a healthier lifestyle. And I think uh, there's been a, certain, <laughs> a tremendous amount of vindication in those ideas and those uh, concepts today. That's just now coming around, but yeah, there was a lot. You know, this isn't the first time this has happened. I mean, even you, you go back in in time, and, and a lot of these religious communities—the Amish, the Mennonites, even the Mormons—all uh, these groups in the late 1800s, early 1900s—they were actually doing kind of the same thing. They were rejecting the society, going out in the into uh, rural communities, starting their own farms. Because they had a, they had this utopian idealism about how they felt society should be, and let's make no mistake, this was also a, a huge social experiment. You know, it took some time to germinate. I like to say it was kind of like a, a tea that, you know, had infused the society that at the at the at the surface at least appeared to be very clear, but underneath that tea is seeping up into the, the the general population, and all it takes is just a little stirring from time to time to, to, to kind of make itself be seen and, and known. So hippies never went away. Hippies, hi, the hippie thing never died out like so many people like to think. It's always been there. It just took a little time for it to sort of infuse itself into the greater mainstream society. Do you see
0: that the tea you uh, were talking about, do you see that kind of existing now in today's current climate and maybe the economic downturn being that stirring rod that is bringing those themes back into our society? Do you see that at all right now?
2: I think that's a good metaphor, uh, Seth. Yeah, if you, you're just take, you're taking it a step further, yes, I, uh, the these, the changes that we're seeing in society, you know, whether it's brought about by you know economic collapse or recession or some kind of natural disaster, yeah, we're, we're starting to look around again now. W- what are the role models? What you know? How do we deal with the uh, the, the new reality now that the quote American dream is slowly, you know, we can see it for what it is. It's, it's, it's really starting to to recede and fade away, for most people. So, so how do we, how do we live fulfilling lives with less money? How much do we really need in our lives, materialistically, economically, to be happy? All those things. You know, you know a lot of people talk about our film being about. Uh, hippie values. I, I I say no. It's not about hippie values. It's about human values, because uh, a lot of us are are being faced with how do we go forward from here, given the fact that you know that the the economic reality is changing and then climate change and. Uh, all these factors are bringing about a whole new consciousness that your generation i 'm a solid card carrying baby boomer i 'm fifty eight years old Your generation is going to be faced with how do we go forward from here and i'm hoping that you know our, our film is in some way an inspiration and a reminder of well heres a, here's one particular path it's not the only path but it's a choice you know, it's an opportunity to uh, you know, maybe get back to something that we've kind of lost and that is this sense of the sense of community this sense of not having to have so much material objects in our life to be happy and this sense of uh, self-reliance that I was so taken with, with this Back to the Land Hippie group I think that's very valuable that we can be really happy with a lot less stuff we really can it's just not about that so I'm hoping that you know, this, this tea is being stirred up. It's gonna have some kind of an impact, and I think it's already having an impact. I'm hopeful for the future.
1: One interesting thing that your film did for me, uh, whether you intended it to or not, is it kind of made me question my own romanticism that that you were talking about. My own romanticism to uh, have this, you know, back to the land, like you know, we'll all move out of the cities and, and live uh, in the hills in some kind of idyllic setting, um, because you presented such an incredibly complex view of all the many sides of, of making that decision. It, and, and making a decision to live in an ecologically responsible manner. Some of the people in the film, almost all of them, I would say, seem to be quite happy in their living situation, but it, it, they definitely made some sacrifices to get there. It's challenging, you know, at, at the age that Seth and I are at, in our, our mid 20s, and saying, you know, do we really want to uh, turn away from everything that we have, all the amenities of, of living in human civilization, and then just go and, and live in the side of a hill?
2: That's the question. Yeah. Do you, do you want to make that change? Is that what you're asking? Right. Yeah. So yeah. On the on the one hand, it's it's a romantic ideal. On the other hand, it's like, well, do we want to really leave behind our iPods and our computers and and our you know and and our our, our high technology world that uh, is is so uh, seductive? I think there's a middle way. I don't I don't think you have to leave all of that stuff behind and and get really ascetic and go be live like a monk. in in the hills somewhere just to find your peace. I I feel like, you know, maybe in your twenties and thirties, you know, you do that for a while to find yourself. That's one thing. But in terms of, you know, having a family, which you've got to remember a lot of these people, you know, that's what they were doing. They were creating families and and they really really you know spreading their roots settling down so life is moving at a much slower pace out there and i think that's one of the reasons they chose to live in the uh, in this sort of rural isolation i like what one of our characters says in the film you know we weren't isolating ourselves from mainstream society we were insulating ourselves they chose to do this with uh, with real resolution because they wanted to have time to really think about what was the right direction for them to go in. I think all of us can do, you know, do with a little bit of that. We all we all need to to figure out what our path's going to be in life. It's uh, it's an important thing. So, you touched on something else though, okay, the romanticism of the ideal versus the reality. Let's not delude ourselves with thinking that if you go out and try to live this kind of rural lifestyle and build your own home and live on solar power and grow organic food, that you're going to be completely a happy person because of it. It's a very rugged, difficult lifestyle. For one thing, it, not only are you isolated, you're also living on almost no money. And I think this is what made this what gave me so much respect for, for the people who, 20 years later, I go back and find, are living a very, fairly similar lifestyle than, than, as they were before, they endured tremendous hardship and sacrifice. You know, it wasn't always successful, but for a lot of people who tried this, marriages broke up, children, you know, there were multiple a huge extended families created because, you know, there were multiple partners involved, but, you know, this created uh, a whole different kind of lifestyle for people, but it, it was very difficult. And a lot of people came back to the city and got jobs and, you know, moved to the suburbs and took on real, you know, solid nine to five jobs. It was just, it was a very difficult thing to pull off. I credit these people sticking it out because they had such strong idealism. They were very committed people and just, uh, like I said, they, they stuck to their guns. And not everybody can do that. We're not all, we're all, we're not all made of that same cloth. And I, I just feel like these folks are, uh, I think that's why, why they're, they're role models for a lot of us, or they can be. You know, they, they really made a lot of choices along the way which uh, I guess they decided that this was going to be the the way they wanted to live and um, they were going to, you know, even though it was tough, they were going to do it anyway.
0: just joining us, we're interviewing Kevin Tomlinson from Back to the Garden.
1: One of the keys to our modern lifestyle, of of course, is money. So I'm going to play a clip here about money and and then we can go from there.
2: I lived for years of my young adult life. I remember quite a period of time where my average income was $2,000 a year. I worked, in comparative terms, I worked for two months of the year for money and 10 months of the year I did whatever I wanted to. So it's not about money. Money really is helpful when you have a, sick, a sore tooth, somebody's sick, you're busted on the highway and you don't have $70 for a tire. Well, then suddenly the money we've made up uh, in our fictional brain is very important. But to go after money as a thing, as an object in itself, uh, it seems to me uh, the height of foolishness.
1: Right, so how did these people get by on such little money?:
2: How did they get by on such little money? I think that sense of community I referred to before I think a lot of it had to do with helping each other out when they didn't have a lot of money, you know, getting together, making food together, you know sharing sharing whatever you grew out of your garden together, sharing child care duties all those things uh that you do when you d- when you can't afford to actually spend cash uh is how they you know what they had to resort to i think that's what really got people through a lot of this and frankly there was just a lot of doing without one Pine talks about that a lot in our film about how you know her kids wanted to have certain types of shoes or clothes and she just couldn't afford anything but the the very cheapest items and so she said if you want to have those things then you've got to work for it she was very, very strict about that. In
0: the film, you interviewed a, mo- most all people that had still kept a lot of the values that you showed in the earlier footage. Did you interview any of the, those folks that, that got nine to five jobs? How were they disillusioned or were they disillusioned by by their earlier hippie years?
2: Uh, you know, I, I don't think they were disillusioned, Seth. I, I, I don't think these folks were disillusioned at all uh, who who made choices to, you know, Return to a more, what we would consider a more conventional mainstream lifestyle where they got jobs which paid them money so they could put money down on a house or have a mortgage or buy some property. I felt, you know, in some cases folks were really forced to have to do this. First of all, there's not a network of of a barter system where people can get by really without having money. It's very difficult. One of our characters has a son who's, who was born deaf. He had real special needs as a, as a child and especially going to schools. Here you are out in the country, living in a teepee basically, or a very, you know, primitive cabin. How do you deal with that? Are you just going to train this person to speak American Sign Language by yourself? How do you, how do you socialize a kid like that? I felt like a lot of these people, you know, were forced to really make some tough decisions and so in this case, Deb moved to a bigger community where she could put her son in a special school where he could get that kind of education and training and, and attention that he needed. So, you know, things like this really force your hand in, in the course of life. You're not always dealt the kind of cards that you think you're going to be dealt. And uh, so in moving to a larger city, she also jumped on the opportunity to go back to school, get a degree, and she got interested in computers, got so good at it that she started doing websites for people and then eventually decided to come to Seattle and, and was hired by Microsoft that's one of the stories in our film, and I'm not going to tell you too much more about that. I don't want to spoil the story for you, but you know, this, this, this is uh, not untypical from, from what happened to a lot of the folks who wanted to live that lifestyle but found it very difficult to raise families in that context because it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult.
0: So that kind of goes into my next question with Deb. Do you think that it's possible to use the money that we earn in the 9-to-5 city lifestyle and spend it effectively to further some of the goals and some of the aims of getting closer to nature. Can you transfer that wealth into helping you move closer to nature?
2: In Deb's case, she really wants to take the money that she earns here in the city and put it toward some of the goals she has personally for living in the country again. She's uh, She's made some choices here, which I won't give away, but she's made some really dramatic, life-changing choices in order to pursue that goal. Of getting back to the land again. A lot of these folks, even though they were their hands were, were forced in some ways to go find an economic means to become more viable and to help their children and to raise those children, they still haven't lost the idealism of wanting to be back on the land again. So in her case, I know that's her goal, and then she is definitely pursuing that now. So yeah, I think it's all, it's just a matter of the choices you make in life. You know, if if you want to take that money and you know buy a home in the city that's that's one choice if you want to take that money and and buy and build a a, a home out in the country that's your choice too and i think she's very mindful of channeling her resources into making her herself a, a better lifestyle living out in the country got to remember, a lot of these people are getting into their middle-aged and older. They're in their 50s and 60s, and one of the people we interviewed is actually in her 70s. So pretty soon, in the next 10 years, some of these folks are going to be faced with how do they deal with you know, getting older? Are they going to be going into assisted living and senior homes? I have a feeling that they're going to be making choices that are very similar to the idealism of their youth and having almost like eco-villages of senior centers where it's more of a communal situation. And uh, I definitely see that as a possibility for a lot of these folks going forward. First of all, it's just going to be a lot more economical. I think it just fits along with their philosophy and their lifestyles
1: kind of moving from money in into one of the characters in the film that I wanted to talk about I think it was it was Jeffrey Stonehill who said that out of all the species on the planet human beings are the only ones <laughs> dumb enough to pay rent he was so insightful at, like uh, and hilarious too in the scene where he was uh, in the grocery store and he said that the camera crew that was with him uh, was for America's most wanted or something like that <laughs> yeah. how, how did you not laugh uncontrollably when filming him <laughs>
2: Well, Jeffrey's quite a character. I can always judge an audience whenever we we show our film at film festivals. I can always judge how receptive an audience will be based on how they respond to Jeffrey because he's uh, he's so funny, and yet uh, quite intelligent and uh, and gifted and uh, erudite. He's he's a, a wonderful person. A lot of the things he says in the film, people really respond to, and and that that quote that you just mentioned about all the uh, animals here on Earth, how come we're the only ones dumb enough to pay rent? That almost always gets a huge laugh. That's like you know, that peaks the meter uh, in terms of of uh, the the laugh quotient in our film. But uh, Jeffrey's a you know he's another guy who's walking his talk. He's still living in a bus. Although I got to tell you the up the update on Jeffrey is he's gotten real tired of living in that bus and uh, in, especially in the winter time it gets very cold up there on Lopez Island. He's just recently moved down to Santa Cruz for the for the winter. You know he he comes from Los Angeles originally, so he's decided that it's great to to live a, a rural lifestyle, but he wants to be warm <laughs> and he wants a little a bit more sunshine. He's taken to going down to Santa Cruz and become kind of a kind of nomadic. He moves down to the where the sun is in the winter and comes back in the summer where, when it's beautiful and bucolic up on Lopez.
1: Okay, so I'm going to play uh, another clip here just to uh, set the stage so you can say a few things about one of the other characters in the film.
2: I always say to people, I, I, I'll say, have you ever hugged a tree? Most people haven't. So I suggest to people, like, sometime when you're in the woods and you're all alone, so there's nobody around. You gotta feel embarrassed or anything. Just pick a tree and put your arms around it and really hug that tree. So what you do to hug a tree, you get here, you saddle up to it real
1: close. You have to do it for a little while.
2: I wanna feel the energy.
0: Thank you. These are friends.
2: It's fine. I mean, I've spent years with some people thinking I'm totally wacky. And at this point in my life,
1: I don't really care that much.
0: What do you think the future of hippies are in the United States or the hippie mentality, do you think it, it will evolve into something that's more universally accepted by the American public or the world public in general? We were talking about with the tea rising, do you see that as an evolutionary pattern that will be more acceptable to people in the future?
2: Yeah, I think that the, the future of the flower power movement and uh, the whole 60s generation uh, I think you know it's like I said. It's those values have never gone away. Those those values have slowly been assimilated into the mainstream culture. That's that uh, kind of really rejected a lot of what hippies were about, at least uh, on the surface. But uh, you know, I mean, w- one of the reasons I, uh, I I made this film was to broaden the stereotype of what what hippies are thought to be. I felt like the, the stereotype out there was really more, uh, you know, the sort of the Cheech and Chong up in smoke stuff where, you know, you, you, you know if you're a hippie, then, you know, you got to have tie dye and smoke pot and you're not very engaged and you're kind of just dropping out. Well, I felt that was completely, you know, simplistic. And um, I think that that's the, the, the whole the values of the sixties really, really never went away. It just kind of went underground toward you know through the, the the eras eras of conservative politicians and um and tremendous economic growth in this country but we're we're we're, we're suddenly we're getting back to the future. I mean it's, we're we're coming back to a lot of those values that have uh have been talked about so much. Uh one of the quotes I like to use in describing uh what those values have have been and where they are today is a, a friend of mine named Mark Rudd, who was an anti-war activist uh, during the 60s. He says, if, if you like natural organic food, thank a hippie. If you use alternative medicine, acupuncture, and massage, thank a hippie. Uh, if you're into Eastern spirituality, yoga, meditation, Buddhism, the Dalai Lama, thank a hippie. Uh, do you want to save the earth for future generations? Have you had enough of war and consumerism? Thank a hippie for starting the conversation. So, you know, all of that is really about saying, look how much these values have already been assimilated into mainstream society. Back in 1988, when I first met these people, it was a healing gathering. What does that mean? It means that everyone was there to to share and spread natural healing arts. And at the time, you know, there was there was an Indian sweat lodge set up There was Reiki therapy. There was a a tea kitchen out there that featured, you know, natural teas, and uh, everything was communal. And so it was just just, just this very, very warm and beautiful vibe there that um, I was very taken in by. You know, at the time, all these healing arts were being practiced. Uh, There was a little thing there called yoga. That, you know, in 1988 was kind of a new kind of Eastern, almost religious, pseudo-religious practice. You know, that was being shared and practiced at the healing gathering. And today, I'm just kind of shocked in a way that, you know, you go down Main Street and there are yoga studios on uh, on quite a few corners where, where I know that the rent is, is pretty pretty expensive. I have a favorite expression, guys, and that is, "What's fringe today is mainstream tomorrow," and that's certainly true of, of a lot of these ideas and concepts that, like I said, in the '60s were were very remote and very fringe in terms of what mainstream America was ready to to, to do.
1: So maybe they weren't hippies; they were just pioneers. Everyone who who was considered a hippie, they were really just pioneers.
2: Well, I, I guess it's all a matter of context. I, pioneers, in, in the sense that, you know, they were trying, they were on the forefront of trying new things, and it worked out. And, uh, you know, th- th- there was something to what these people were saying. And, and uh, it always takes a little bit of. Somebody's got to be out there on the, on the front of the line scouting and uh, checking out, you know, what the, what the new frontier is going to be like. And um, I give the, uh, the 60s and their, their ideas of, of wanting to completely change society, you know, rebelling against conformity. I give that a lot of credit for the changes that we're seeing today. It's just, uh, it's just an ever-changing continuum.
1: This land is your land. <laughs> Then it's mine. We're back talking with Kevin Tomlinson, director of Back to the Garden, on The Extra Environmentalist. What advice do you have for the next generation of people that might want to move back to the land, having, having seen it you know, develop over all these years? Uh, how do you get started as someone who's maybe in their early or mid-20s?
2: What, what advice do I have for folks who are thinking of getting back to the land today? Hmm. My advice would be just follow, follow your bliss. Follow your, follow your dreams and you know you guys this generation's going to come up with a whole different set of values and a whole different set of ideals about how to live in the future you know right now i think uh, there's there's a lot of emphasis upon eating healthy i mean look at the tremendous changes we're seeing now in uh, the emphasis on what kind of food that we eat uh, vegetarianism you know veganism uh, all these All these ideas about factory farms, these would have been unheard of. These wouldn't have been even questioned 30, 40 years ago. its um, I think you guys are going to live in a world where things move a lot faster, of course, because of technology. But I think there's going to be a lot more thought about how we live healthier, uh, more sustainable lives. We're going to have to do that because uh, we're endangering our own existence. As a, as, as a lot of famous scientists have said, you know, saving the Earth isn't about you know, saving the planet because the planet's going to survive. It's the human race that's going to pollute itself and, and, and extinguish itself if we continue on this path of, of uh, overconsumption of, of our planet's limited resources. We, we have to figure out how to do that. I think the future is going to be filled with, with um, sites over, instead of oil, it's going to be over resources like water. That's going to be the next oil uh, because these are limited resources and overpopulation and climate change. All those things are really forcing our hand to, to take another look at how, how do we go forward uh, as a planet globally, you know, thinking globally about existing here on Earth—that's uh, going to be the next challenge. I'm glad that these ideas are out there, and I think they're—I ins- hope they're inspiring to people. Yeah, we'll just see. I, I just—I have a lot of optimism about your generation. Uh, it's up to you guys now to figure out and how to go forward. And and I think that you know, hopefully, that the, the folks in our film have. Uh, are some inspiration to you guys, and and I'm I'm very happy that that you were able to see our film and and think to yourself, how can we learn from this? That's, That's great.
0: I do think that our generation is getting a lot from what your movie talks about, and I think that's really, really good stuff. Just kind of in wrapping up, how can anyone listening to our podcast view your film or obtain a copy for themselves?
2: Please uh, go to our website at www.backtothegardenfilm.com. We sell copies of our film on the website, you can also check out our Facebook page there if you're interested in, you know, being kept up to date with where we're going with the film, film festivals. We're going to be broadcasting on, on uh, television here in Washington State in January. We've been picked up as a part of what's called Real Northwest, which uh, our film will be airing on January 27th on KCTS. It's the local PBS affiliate here in Seattle. So we're very thrilled about that. You know, there's just lots of ways to to, to get involved. If you want to go to the Facebook and the and the web page, great. I mean, that's where you're going to find out the most about what other people are saying and get a sense of community there.
0: Really hope your film does uh, you know really well, and I hope that a lot of people watch it. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to leave us with, just on closing? Anything else that we didn't talk about that you want that you want to mention?
2: I think we got most of it out. You know, I, I wanted to definitely make the comment about broadening the stereotype about what hippies are and we talked about that we talked about you know the idealism of the 60s where it where it's going going forward i love the fact that you guys picked up on uh, the whole finding your own path and and how it's important to to go out and explore the outside of a outside of the suburban and urban areas so that you can get a sense of a perspective on your own life so i think i think we covered it
0: i gotta tell you that after we watched the film we went out into that pacific spirit park that's right next to justin's house i was visiting him last week and we found a tree that we both liked and we both gave that tree a hug
2: <laughs> great <laughs> you know right. i i, I want to say one thing about that scene can do we have time for that uh yes yeah, sure, yeah. ahead yeah Okay, you you played a section of our film where where One Pine is demonstrating how to hug a tree. When I shot that that combat was completely unplanned first of all i didn 't know she was going to do that, but once I shot it, I, I said to myself that 's in the film I, you know I know that sh- that scene is going to be in the film, but once it was edited in, I really felt like I wonder how people are going to respond to this tree hugging scene because it's, you know we all have this stereotype of of, of okay hippies are tree huggers, right granola eating tree huggers. And I thought, people, are, are people gonna laugh at this? Are people gonna like, be snickering when this is showing? Well, to my surprise, I guess I should say, it's a very reverential scene. It's, you can see the sincerity that, and the reverence that she has when she's, when she's demonstrating this. And it's not goofy or silly at all. It's, it's actually, people are very moved by that scene. I'm just so glad it's in there. I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to shoot that because um, I think it, it also dispels another, you know, just another stereotype that we have about uh, about uh, what tree hugging really is about. It's a it's a metaphor for nature, and it's uh, uh, something I'm very proud of, and 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 you know, very happy with uh, the response we've had to our film in general.
0: Thank you so much for your time, and if you ever you know, come up with another movie or a book or anything you want to talk, we will be glad to have you on The Extra Environmentalist.
2: Well, thank you, guys, and, and I don't know how your your podcast goes out, who listens to it, but I look forward to hearing what you put together from this, and I'd love to have a copy when, when, when it's all wrapped up. Yeah, we'll definitely send you a link.
1: Yeah, give us about three or four weeks, and we'll have it up. Bye. Take care. All right, and so that wraps up our interview with Kevin. What were your thoughts, Seth?
0: Yeah, some really interesting things to say. I like the part where he says that the the, kind of the idea that the hippie movement is ahead of its time. And I like the idea that you brought up about how just pushing our culture forward and bringing those new ways of living into the mainstream. I like the, the quote that he said, what's fringe today is mainstream tomorrow. That kind of hit home with me and kind of helped me to understand what he was going for when he was talking about uh, the hippie movement back in the 70s. What did you think of the interview, Justin? I thought
1: it was a lot of fun talking about the movie, and over the last few days we've been seeing all of the footage of these student protests that have been coming out of the UK. And so when thinking about our generation and our response to what it means to live in a time of uh, shrinking economies instead of growing economies the kind of angst that brings about when governments have to take austerity measures. It's interesting to think about alternatives to the mainstream culture and the lifestyle it provides. And so here's an example of all the people in the film Back to the Garden who chose an alternative to the mainstream lifestyle many years ago. You sent me an article from a CNN correspondent, Tom Foreman, called You Say You Want a Revolution. And it's just about how what we're seeing in tuition more than doubling or tripling almost uh, in the UK and the angst and anger that brought about uh, among the youth population, that's only just the beginning because that's one of many possible austerity measures that are going to come about in Western governments and the situation that youth are facing in the UK is uh, very similar to the situation youth are facing here in the United States and so he's saying it's only a matter of time before we start facing the same kind of angst uh, and violence on a mass
0: scale It's very interesting when we see those kind of articles Popping up in the mainstream Does it make you feel a little bit like vindicated? What do you mean vindicated? So, you know, just like that your views are, are making it into the mainstream And you can start to see the, uh, the mainstream picking up on these ideas That have, you've been feeling for a long time now
1: Yeah, in some ways, but in other ways They're talking about mass violence So that's never a good thing it's true. Uh, yeah, what was nice about our interview with Kevin Tomlinson Is when you read something like this article About the UK student protests And saying like, oh, it's a matter of time Before we face similar problems here in the US You can go to the kinds of things that we saw In the film Back to the Garden And say there are alternatives Now that may not be for everybody But at least if you find yourself with no option And you don't know what to do There's an option You have an option It goes beyond that. Maybe you go and serve as an au pair in a country around the world, or you go and teach English in Korea, or you do workaways in various farms uh, all around the world. There's definitely options, and the longer we try to fit ourselves into the mainstream life cycle and the mainstream way of living that we've all expected, the more frustration we're going to get, because that is not necessarily feasible anymore
0: kind of reminds me of one of the quotes from the the interview, where he said, uh, the planet is going to survive, it's just the human race that might not.
1: And I think that's a big problem with the philosophy of environmentalism. It's that it almost views humans as too powerful in a lot of ways, I think, because it always focuses on, you know, we have to save the planet. But in reality, if you take a a very long period of time and look at the Earth, the Earth is still going to be here in a few hundred years. It's human civilization that we need to talk about saving. And there's actually a French uh, anarchist group uh, called the Tarnac Nine and they decided to withdraw from society in a very similar way to the way that all the people in Back to the Garden did. But essentially they put out this document that talks about the coming revolution. and So this was years ago. They have this book called The Coming Insurrection. They were saying that the capitalist system is bankrupt and it's only a matter of time before the youth become disenfranchised and rise up. And this is exactly the same thing that we're talking about now. You know, we're seeing in the UK, and uh, this article on CNN was talking about happening in the United States. One of the first lines from The Coming Insurrection, that book, is uh, it says that there is no environmental crisis the crisis is the environment itself because the environment is what's left to man when he's lost everything else and once there is no society we are only left with the environment it is the disaster itself
0: and the earth will be here long after the humans are gone yeah All- always cheery topics here on the extra environmentalist. list that's what we strive to do bring you happy very positive topics to, to make your day just that much brighter <laughs> and uh, on
1: extra environmentalist number nine we have an interview with uh, the Easter Bunny wait a wait a minute it's Christmas season Santa Claus yeah coming up wait, on extra <laughs> interview with Rudolph.
0: what are you talking about Justin
1: <laughs> coming up on extra environmentalist 9 we have an interview with Santa and his workshop of Happy elves. And he's actually had to lay off most of them because of the economic troubles. No, I'm sorry, I can't can't do that. Uh, They're on strike, I heard. (laughs) All the unemployed elves are uh, trying to find ways to make a living, and they've decided that the only way to do that is by sabotaging the reindeer. And so
0: you'll just find reindeer poop uh, dropped all over your homes on Christmas. Instead of presents, you'll just get reindeer crap. Yeah, but, you know, I've heard that you can you can make a really nice uh, souffle with reindeer poo. It's magical, you know, it comes from the North Pole. And if you like The Extra Environmentalist and you want to listen to more episodes because you're not depressed or going outside to riot in the streets, you can go to the uh, Extra Environmentalist website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com or you can email us at podcast at com. And Justin, you want to tell us about our phone number? call and leave us a voicemail
1: we always love to hear from you we might even play it on a future episode and by might i mean we will because (laughs) we always love to get voicemails and you can reach us at plus one nine one nine seven oh one xtra so give us a call let us
0: know if we're being too down and out maybe you can just interject some happy fluffiness into our our podcast
1: yeah or if you can actually get us an interview with santa claus Make sure that happens. Or actually, if Santa Claus listens to this episode, I just want him to call in and uh, leave some Christmas
0: cheer for everybody. Or any of his merry elves who are on strike right now. Who are riding in the streets of the North Pole. So you've just been listening to another episode of The Extra Environmentalist, and we love you. Have a great day. Goodbye.